And Father, as we now come to your word, once again, Father, we are reminded of the sufficiency of your word, of the power of your word, of the authority of your word. And we ask, Lord, for humble spirits that we may submit ourselves to it, that we may understand, and that we may be nourished spiritually by the study of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would convict us of things that we need to be convicted of. We pray, Lord, that you would change us through the study of your word, knowing that your word does your work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray for your will to be done during this time. We pray for Christ to be glorified and magnified and for us as your people to be edified and conformed to his image. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of John today, working our way through chapter 6. and We'll be looking at verses 22 to 27 today. As we started this chapter, I told you that there are really two primary themes that run throughout this entire chapter, that really stand out in this chapter. One is the sovereignty of God, and specifically His sovereignty in salvation. And the second theme is the reality of false followers. Regarding this second theme, the the reality of false followers, John MacArthur said this, he said, quote, I don't know a place in the New Testament that focuses more specifically on that issue than this chapter, end quote. Of course, he's referring to chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. And this is exactly what the text has already confronted us with as we started this chapter with the feeding of the 5,000, which would really more appropriately be referred to as the feeding of the 5,000 families. Uh, But after this incredible miracle, what we saw was there was not one single convert after this miracle. Instead, every person who was there, they were of one mind, not uh, wanting to submit to Jesus. In fact, refusing to submit to Jesus, but wanting to make him submit to them. They wanted to take him by force to be their earthly king, which of course was not why he was there. And what amazes me more. I'm not sure. The fact that that Jesus performs this great miracle for 20 or 25,000 people, or the fact that after this miracle, nobody, not even one, responds by repenting and believing in Jesus. Which do you find more amazing? The miracle or the rebellion? They're both pretty amazing. But Jesus responded to that rebellion by withdrawing from these false followers and sending his disciples out on to the Sea of Galilee. Of course, that was the contrast. It was contrasted by the way that Jesus did not withdraw from his true followers, from his disciples, when they were straining and rowing against the wind. And Jesus comes out to them on the water, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water, calming the storm, and delivering them instantly to their destination. But as you consider those two stories, do you see the contrast between false followers and authentic followers. Regarding the false followers, the false disciples, friends, this is, 
This is such an important topic because I, I am just convinced that there is not a worse predicament for a person to be in than to be a false disciple of Jesus. Such a person is probably the least likely to be aware of the danger that they are in, the danger that they're in of spending eternity in hell. They will probably have some degree of assurance. Maybe they have a lot of assurance, but it's a false assurance. Think of it this way. Which is worse? Say you've got two people. Um, One person uh, has a disease But he's open to the idea that he has a disease. He doesn't know if he has it yet, but he's at least open to the idea. And the other person is absolutely positive that they do not have this disease, and yet they do. So they both may start noticing symptoms, and because the one doesn't know one way or the other if he has this disease, he's open to the possibility that these symptoms that he's experiencing are related to that disease, but the other person who is wrongly certain that they don't have a disease, if they start showing those same symptoms, they would be far, far less likely to consider even the remote possibility that the symptoms are an indication of that disease. And so it is with false followers of Jesus. I don't believe that there is a worse situation, a worse predicament for a person to be in than to be filled with false assurance. It was St. Augustine who gave us the the famous following quote. He said, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. End quote. And that is one of my favorite quotes. I, I absolutely love that quote. But it does uh, deserve a bit of nuance because this restlessness that humanity, that fallen humanity has, cannot be relieved simply in any way, shape, or form that the individual chooses. There is only one way to God, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ alone. And Scripture is crystal clear on this. By nature, nobody, nobody seeks for God. Now you might say, but I did. And in one sense, that might be true, but you can't say that you sought God before He sought you. You cannot say that in your fallen state, you sought God. No, you didn't. Nobody does. Our experiences do not have a higher authority than Scripture. We can't exegete our uh, experiences, drawing truth from our experiences that's in conflict with Scripture, and say, well, I'm going to go with my experiences rather than Scripture. Experiences do not trump Scripture. Experiences are not authoritative. The doctrine of prevenient grace states that divine grace must precede, must come before an exercise of faith. In other words, it's the idea that nobody seeks for God unless God first seeks them. So to take that a little bit further, it means that nobody calls out to God for salvation unless God has called them to salvation first. The question then becomes, can God desire to do something and try to do something and yet fail? And the answer is no. 
No, he cannot fail. Scripture is also crystal clear on that. Uh, And we're actually going to get much more into that in our text next week. Uh, But for now, we need to understand that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead individual, enlightening their mind with the glorious truth of the gospel, a person cannot even begin to think rightly about God. Because indeed, by nature, they cannot even desire to think rightly about God. So, when we're talking about false followers, we're talking about people who very well, in one sense, may be said to seek God, and yet, they seek Him wrongly. They seek Him for all the wrong reasons, They seek him for selfish reasons, for self-fulfillment, for for all the wrong reasons. And this is what we're going to see in the passage that we examine today. People are seeking Jesus, in one sense, but they seek him and they follow him for all of the wrong reasons. And so in the ultimate sense, they are not seeking him. They are not following him. So our text for today is John chapter 6. Verses 22 to 27, and the point of this passage is that we, even today, we must ensure that we are seeking and following Jesus for all of the right reasons. Jesus had sought the disciples in the middle of the lake, and upon getting into the boat, John told us they immediately arrived at their destination. So the setting in the text that we're looking at today is the following day. Let's look at verses 22 to 25. It says, The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Let's just stop there. There, there's a bit of ambiguity here uh, in, in understanding the sequence of events. What we can gather for certain is that the same people who witnessed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 families are now on the other side of the sea, and they aren't sure exactly, they, ha- they actually have no idea how Jesus got there because they knew that he didn't get into the boat with his disciples. At least he didn't get into the boat when they saw. They didn't, he didn't get into the boat when they left the shore. And so they are confused, they are perplexed to see him show up with his disciples on the other side. They, they can't even imagine, they can't fathom how in the world uh, he got there because they don't conceive of the idea that he would have walked on water out to the disciples' boat. So however these people got to the other side, some believe they walked around, some believe they came over in boats after the storm. I I tend to believe that they they probably walked around, but I don't want to get too dogmatic about a small detail like that. However they got there, the point is that they are perplexed. They're confused. You might even say that they are amazed by the fact that Jesus is there. And so they go up to him, because he's the one that they're, they're waiting for. He's the one they're, they're looking for. 
And they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, let's not miss the fact that they did come to Capernaum seeking Jesus. The text says that explicitly. But what we must understand and what the text is about to explain for us is that they weren't really seeking him because they weren't seeking him rightly. They were seeking him purely for for selfish reasons. Specifically, they were seeking him because the meal that he had miraculously provided for them the previous day had had been really nice. Uh, A free meal, uh, all that you can eat, and, and then leftovers. How convenient, right? But now they're hungry again because it's the next day. And so they're hoping, they're expecting to be given another free meal. And so they ask him, Rabbi, how did you get here? And how does he respond? We're going to see that in a second. I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. He's going to pretend uh, that he didn't even hear them. What he's going to do instead is he's going to choose to deal with the issue of their seeking after him and following after him wrongly, which in truth is no different from not seeking him or following him at all. In fact, this is the issue that will lead to the sermon that Jesus preaches on uh, God's sovereignty and election in much of this chapter. But let's understand from the outset, however, that there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing unloving, unmerciful, uncompassionate, uh, unkind about Jesus just cutting to the chase and confronting them about their sinful motivations. Uh, about the issue of following him wrongly. In fact, it is actually the most loving thing that anyone could do because they will not seek him or follow him rightly if they aren't even made aware of the fact that they've been seeking and following him wrongly. See, there's a tendency that that you can find, even in the American church today, it's actually kind of pervasive, that's centered on the idea that there isn't a right way or a wrong way to seek or to worship God. The idea is that as long as we're not doing anything that God has explicitly forbidden, uh, that we're free to come to him and to worship him in any way that we want. And that is absolutely nonsense Uh, because there's an endless number of things that aren't explicitly forbidden. But there's a set of very explicit instructions in Scripture regarding how God is to be approached, how God is to be worshipped. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, friends, that there is nothing more important than seeking and following Jesus rightly. It's the most important thing in the world. And that's, that's why I say that we must ensure that we are seeking and following Jesus in the right way for the right reasons, even today. So Jesus is just going to cut to the chase. He's going to pretend that he didn't even hear their question, Rabbi, how did you get here? And he's going to deal with the improper motivation that drove the people to seek and follow him. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. John writes, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God 
has set his seal. Now in these very brief two verses, there are actually three, uh, very, at least three, uh, very important principles for us to see. The first thing, and this is probably, this is just more important than I can even articulate because it's really foundational. The first thing that we should note here is that Jesus sees through all of the outward stuff. Jesus sees through the pomp and the circumstance. He sees through the performance. He sees through the show. He sees through the outward actions. And he's acutely aware of what's going on in the human heart. He's acutely aware of the actual motivation of their hearts. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus can. And what we see here is that Jesus does. And friends, that should honestly be a sobering reality for us if we know how inclined our hearts are to sin. We don't know that first and foremost because of our experiences. We know that first and foremost because what? Because the Bible tells us how sinful our hearts are. So let's start on just the surface level in the text. The people have sought Jesus, right? And in one sense, it's true. They've, they've sought him out. They've, they've found him. And yet at the same time, it's painfully obvious that they have not truly sought him based on what Jesus says. Their hearts aren't set on him. Their desires are not set on him. What are their hearts and desires set on? They're set on themselves. Jesus makes it clear here that that's not only a, a wrong motivation, but it is a sinful motivation. See, in in their eyes, he's just a means to a temporary end. You know, he's kind of like a a personal genie in a bottle. You know, they they want food. Hey, Jesus, let's go. Where's my food, right? So he's kind of like their personal genie in a bottle. They didn't seek him because they believed in him. They didn't seek him because they had faith in him. In fact, look down at verse 30 while your Bible's open. Look down at verse 30 where they say to Jesus, and this is the same conversation taking place. They say to Jesus in verse 30, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That is mind-blowing, isn't it? Do you understand what they're saying when they say that? They're saying that the feeding of the 5,000 families, which was really the feeding of 20 or 25,000 people, wasn't a good enough sign to warrant them believing in him. See, friends, if there is one thing that might be more amazing than the feeding of the 5,000 families, it's the fact that that miracle didn't persuade one person to believe. It didn't persuade one person one little bit. So they didn't seek Jesus because they had faith in him. So why did they seek him? Because they're hungry. Because they want their stomachs filled. That meal that Jesus gave them the night before was great, but it didn't leave them permanently satisfied. Make no mistake about it, friends. People today, people in our culture around the world, in every culture, are no different than the people in this narrative, in this text. 
The heart of man is still desperately wicked. And with that in mind, the idea that we can convince somebody to believe in Jesus, to repent, and to put saving faith in Jesus purely on the basis of evidence is completely mistaken. That's actually a pagan ideology. It's a pagan pagan anthropology, a way of thinking about man that ignores the clear testimony of Scripture regarding the depths of man's depravity, regarding the depths of man's fallen nature. And not only is humanity's natural condition the same today as it was in this passage, but more importantly something for us to keep in mind, as Hebrews 13.8 tells us, Jesus is the same. Not only is man the same, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let us never forget that Jesus does not change. And so even today, 2,000 years later, Jesus is still aware of the motivations in a man's heart that a person has when they come to him. He sees right through all the outward stuff. He's looking at the heart of a person, which means that he knows why we do the things that we do. He knows why we sing. He knows why we pray. He knows why we study his word. He knows, in fact, why every single one of you individually is here today. He knows. He's aware of it. The question is, Are you? Are you aware of it? Do you know why you're here today? I mean, have you thought about that with any degree of depth? Because our natural tendency is to do things purely for ourselves, purely for for selfish reasons, for for self-fulfillment, for happiness, for status, for fill in the blank. There's There's a million reasons that people do what they do. We do things based on our felt needs, though. The things that we perceive to be of the greatest immediate importance. So, so for example, think about it this way. What, what fills your mind when you came here? What filled your mind when you came here this morning to worship Jesus corporately with your church family? I mean, did you come in here today thinking about how you need to be out of here by 12.30 because you have somewhere to be after church? Seahawks season's done, sorry. Uh, But there are some football games on today. Did you come today thinking, boy, I can't wait to to sit back today and watch some football? Or maybe I I can't wait to to go off and and have lunch after church and your mind is just set about, I wonder what I'm going to order. Are you thinking about football games? Are you thinking about food? Are you thinking about, you know, maybe all the things that you need to get done before Monday rolls around? Is this how you come to worship? Because I think our natural tendency is to say yes, if we're being honest. So is this how you come? Or do you come with your mind set on Jesus? And do you come with a desire to proclaim him in song and prayer and to grow in your understanding of him and of his worth. Friends, it is worth having a small dose of concern about this because so much of the Christianity that we get exposed to is focused on us rather than on God. Now, you might be wondering what is so wrong with focusing on us? What's wrong with focusing on felt needs? I mean, after all, isn't Jesus the answer to every need? 
Of course he is, yes, but as James Montgomery points out, quote, it is tragically possible to so focus on our needs that we are actually focusing on ourselves rather than on Jesus and so never get to the solutions to our problems that Jesus wants to bring, end quote. In fact, this is what's so wrong with the social justice movement, uh, for, for by and large. I mean, it, it doesn't start, the social justice ideology doesn't start with the fact that God has forgiven every sin of those who have put faith in Christ. It doesn't start with the fact that we are united to God and to one another, uh, every other Christian, by the work of Christ on Calvary. No, it denies, in fact, that we are united, and it emphasizes the idea that we are divided, um, that, that some people have somehow wronged other people. Uh, maybe we've wronged others, or maybe others have wronged us. Um, maybe we ourselves haven't specifically wronged others, but our ancestors have. Uh, and, and so the attention, all that attention, is focused on who? Me. You. It's focused on people, not on God. As people seek for ways that somebody could even qualify uh, to to call themselves um, somebody who's been oppressed or somebody who's been an oppressor. In a nutshell, the social justice movement does the same thing that these people in the text have done. They have set their minds entirely on man's felt needs. Rather, than on Jesus. Friends, I urge you, I urge you to to examine your hearts when you come to worship. Let our devotion be full, be real and pure. Let us make every attempt to sift out every impurity, every impure motive, knowing that it's very easy for you to fool your parents about why you're coming to church. It's even possible to fool your pastor by showing up every week for church. You can fool all kinds of people, but you can't fool Jesus. You can't fool Jesus. He's not deceived by our actions. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Blessed are those who can say, as Simon Peter does, down in verses 68 and 69 of this chapter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We must come to him with pure motives, understanding, knowing, believing that he sees our motivation for coming to him. That's the first thing that we see in, this, in these two verses. The second thing that we should see is it's related to the first. First, we see Jesus' awareness of their hearts, which is only possible if he's God, right? Only God can see the heart. But second, what does he see exactly? He sees that they are laboring. But what are they laboring for? What are they working for? They're laboring for food that perishes. What does that mean? Well, the the food that Jesus fed them the day before, that that was real food. That, That was literal food. 
And yet it was more than that. It was an object lesson. The bread and the fish represented, or they symbolized something. They were, they were designed to teach them something. The lesson was that Jesus alone is capable of satisfying the deepest hungers of the human soul. That was the lesson. But the food, the food was real. They didn't want Jesus, though. They wanted what Jesus could give them without actually wanting Jesus. And what Jesus could give them, like he gave them the day before, was perishable food. What Jesus is pointing out here is not that it's wrong to eat literal physical food for physical nourishment and sustenance. Rather, what he's showing them is their sin. He's showing them that their sin is in having their priorities all rearranged. They want the gift, the perishable food, but they don't want the giver of every good gift. See, friends, God wants us to enjoy every good gift. He's the one who gives them to us, and he wants us to enjoy them. But they can only be enjoyed rightly if our priorities are straight. To put it another way, don't be so concerned for your body that you neglect the care for your soul. That's what's happened here. That's what these people are doing. They're so concerned with their bodies that they have neglected what their souls need. That's what happens when we love, when we desire the gifts more than we love and desire the giver of the gifts. See, what happens when we get our priorities mixed up goes well beyond just not reading your Bible regularly or not coming to church regularly. Those indeed are uh, very strong indications that a person's priorities are all mixed up. But what often happens is that a person will experience some kind of crisis with their mixed up priorities. They'll, They'll experience some kind of crisis in life in which their things, whatever occupies their top priority, are threatened or they come to God in need of, uh, or want of more things. And so then, when they realize they don't have enough things, or that their things are threatened, then they'll come to God, then they'll come to church, then they'll, they'll start reading their Bible. And yet, they're coming for the wrong reasons. And, but they'll walk away, they'll, they'll, say, they'll be able to say, hey, I, I went to church today. Uh, so they'll walk away feeling good about having done these things, What this ends up doing is just weaving a web of self-deception. See, it's not wrong to have gifts. It's It's not wrong to possess things. It's not wrong to even enjoy the things that we have. What's wrong, what's indeed sinful, is to value and to love and to, to labor or work for those things more than you love or value God. And friends, that happens very, very easily to even the most mature of Christians. The question really boils down to, do you own and control your stuff, or does your stuff own and control you? Because that's what happens when your priorities are misarranged. If there was anyone whose loyalty to God was tested against his loyalty to the gifts that God had given him, It was Abraham. He really had the ultimate test on this issue. God had blessed him abundantly. God had blessed him greatly. Abraham had incredible wealth. 
But I don't think that there's any question that if we were to ask Abraham, uh, you know, hey, Abe, what, what was the best gift? What was the greatest gift that God gave you? What do you think his answer would be? His answer would be my son. My son, Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. The son that God miraculously provided to Abraham and Sarah when they were well beyond their childbearing years. And as Isaac was growing up into a a full-grown man, God steps up and he he instructs Abraham saying this in Genesis 22-2. He says, now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. What is God testing in Abraham? He's testing Abraham's priorities. That's what. Does Abraham love the gifts more than the gift giver? Where does his ultimate loyalty lie? And the answer to that question would be reflected in his obedience or lack thereof to the instruction that he'd been given by God. I mean, we can be sure that Abraham really had to wrestle with this. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Uh, I'm sure that he had to wrestle with this for, for some time. He unquestionably had to be wondering why in the world God would instruct him to do something like that after promising Abraham that Isaac would be the one whose line the promise of a Messiah would run through. Hebrews tells us actually what Abraham finally concluded, how he finally came to peace with this instruction. He believed that God was going to resurrect Isaac. He believed that, he was, that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. Now, God didn't say that. That's not what God said. God didn't say that he was going to resurrect Isaac, but Abraham trusted that God was good, trusted that God was going to accomplish the purposes that he had already expounded upon with Abraham. And so, he concluded that whatever God had planned was going to come to pass, even if that means raising his son from the dead. And so Abraham brought Isaac up on Moriah. He prepared Isaac as a sacrifice, and God allowed Abraham to go through with following God's instructions right up to the last second, right before the knife was about to be thrust into Isaac. And at that point, God stopped him. He reminded, of, reminded Abraham of his promises unto him, and he provided the sacrifice that he required. God always provides what he requires. See, Abraham didn't have to slay his son, but he did have to slay his idols. And so do we, friends. Abraham had to get his priorities straight and keep his priorities straight. And I have to imagine that this would always, for the rest of his life, it would be an event in his mind which would remind him of the importance of keeping his priorities in order. Loving the giver more than the gifts. Now here's where people go too far to the other extreme. At one extreme you have people who just love all the the gifts but don't love the giver. At the other extreme, there will be some who say, uh, we should hate the gifts, 
We, we shouldn't even have uh, the gifts. We, we should have as few gifts as possible. I mean, I've, heard, I've actually heard stories of people who took Jesus' uh, instruction to heart to the rich young ruler to, uh, to sell everything, give to the poor, and to follow him. And so they end up becoming homeless, forsaking every worldly possession, uh, and, and think that that is what Jesus requires of us. That's not what Jesus demands. That instruction was an attack explicitly on the idols of the rich young ruler, Uh, but that wasn't an instruction given to the disciples. Uh, It's not applicable to anyone other than the rich young ruler. But notice here in chapter 6, verse 27, that he's not telling them, don't work for anything. Don't labor for anything. Just be. He's not telling them that. Rather, he's pointing out that what they're working for is the wrong thing. So he doesn't just say, do not work for the food that perishes and, and, and just leave it at that. He doesn't just leave it at that. Rather, he adds the third thing that we should see in this passage, he, saying this. He says, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. The principle there, friends, is that we are to work, but we're to work rightly. We're to work for the food which endures to eternal life. Now again, Jesus is kind of using a a figure of speech here. What does that mean exactly? You can summarize it with what Jesus taught elsewhere. Uh, He actually said something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, uh, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's from Matthew 6.33. What are these things that will be added to you? They're gifts. They're they're the gifts, the the physical and the material needs that we have. In fact, if if you examine that context, that's exactly why we shouldn't worry about what comes tomorrow. God's got it under control. The point is, we're not to seek those things before we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're not to seek things first. We're not to prioritize things, gifts, over the giver. The point is that we must have our priorities straight and that only God is worthy of being your top priority in life. What comes after that? The gifts. The gifts. Those might vary from person to person, but uh, roughly speaking, okay, if you're married, your spouse comes next. That's your second priority. If you have children, they come third. Uh, work, titles, uh, education, hobbies, all those things, they come after those top three. And I have seen it time and time again, friends, getting your priorities out of order will almost always result in chaos erupting in your life because God disciplines his children as a loving father should. But for the person who keeps their priorities straight, keeping God specifically as their, as their first priority, as their, as their top priority, as their greatest pursuit, their greatest desire in life, they'll find that all those other priorities just fall into place. And they will avoid a lot, a great deal of hardship and pain. But we must see that it is labor. It is work to keep God as our top priority because of the inclinations of our hearts. Because 
our inclination is always to be self-serving and to do things with an improper motivation. So it is labor. It is work. In fact, it's hard work. That's, that's the implication here. How do we labor for the food that endures to eternal life? How do we work for things that matter in an eternal perspective? What, what does it look like when a person makes seeking and pursuing God their top priority in life? Well, I'd start with this. I'd say they read their Bibles. They, they read their Bibles, and they don't just you know, give their Bible a, a quick look and, okay, cross that off the list, I'm done with that for the day. No, they, they labor at it. They labor at it like divers taking a, a deep breath before plunging themselves to the, the depths of the ocean floor like divers, prying open the mouth of an oyster to get the hidden treasure. We have to ensure that, that we're, when we come to worship the Lord, both privately and corporately on the Lord's Day, that we come with clean hands, pure hearts, confessing and repenting of any sin which might be hindering our walk with the Lord. We must pray as if we are soldiers who are caught behind enemy lines in a battle, radioing for help. All this is to say that to labor for the food that endures to eternal life means to labor in the means of grace that God has appointed. God has ordained all of these things as means of grace. Things that keep us spiritually healthy, spiritually nourished, things that keep our priorities straight. God has ordained all these things for our spiritual health. And if God is indeed at the top of our list of priorities, these are the things that will follow, and these are also the things that will keep him there at the top of our list of priorities. So these people in the text, they came to Jesus, they sought Jesus, but they didn't seek him or come to him rightly. So what do you think happened? What do you suppose happened when Jesus refused to be their personal genie in a bottle? Well, considering that they're hungry, I think it's probably safe to assume that they went someplace else. They probably went to find food, physical food, someplace else. They may have stuck around for a little bit, but what happens when a person follows Jesus for the wrong reason? Eventually they fall away. That's one of the primary characteristics of a false follower. Eventually, they stop following. That is a scary reality, by the way. But that's what happens at the end of this chapter. After preaching in the synagogue, verse 66, we read this. Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Notice the title's the same. They're disciples. But they're false disciples. So friends, what do you do when God doesn't do exactly what you wanted? What do you do when God doesn't do what you expect him to do? What do you do when scripture reveals him to be bigger than you had imagined, greater than you had imagined, different than you're comfortable with? Do you walk away? Do you lose interest? Do you argue? Or do you joyfully submit yourself to him, realizing that whatever it was you wanted from him, whatever your plans, whatever your intentions are, 
they're not as good as the plans and intentions that God has for you. But if you're going to seek God and worship Him rightly, as opposed to the multitudes who do so wrongly, you must not only have pure intentions, but you must realize first and foremost that the riches of God's grace are only found in Christ Jesus. They are only found in Christ Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God. The person who seeks for God outside of Jesus is going to come up empty every single time. You have a better chance of finding flying unicorns at the bottom of the ocean than you do of finding God outside of Jesus. Jesus says of himself, on him, on himself, the Father God has set his seal. Now, the seal in Jesus' day was was basically the equivalent of a notarized signature in our day and age. It it was the guarantee that whatever a document says, uh, it was fully approved by the sender. It meant that the document was authentic, the real deal. It wasn't a forgery. It wasn't a cheap knockoff. And Jesus is saying that that is him sent by the Father with the seal of the Father, of God. Jesus is saying that He alone is qualified to grant eternal life to those who come to Him. And He's authentic. He is fully approved of by the Father. He alone is the means by which a person may come into fellowship with God. Jesus will declare in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you believe that? If you do believe it, you you must know that if you seek God at all, then it must be in Christ Jesus. But if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that He alone is qualified to say that, that He alone can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me but through the Father, If you don't believe that, you can search every nook and cranny in the universe, but you will not find God. Not only will you not find God, but if you don't find God, you won't find peace with God. You will remain His enemy. Reconciliation with God is only found in Christ. But consider Christ's promise that He will give eternal life to all who seek it in Him. All who come to Him for eternal life, He will give it to them. What gracious and encouraging words. So believe in Him and come to Him exactly as you are. Whatever the needs of your souls might be, Jesus alone is willing and able to satisfy those needs, to fulfill those needs freely and instantly and bountifully, more than sufficiently, graciously, and eternally. Friends, we must ensure that we are seeking and following Jesus for all the right reasons. We must make sure that we are not working for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. So what are you laboring for? What are you working for? Things? Gifts? Food that will perish? Temporary things? or food which endures unto eternal life. Friends, let us never settle, nor feel content or satisfied 
by the gifts apart from the giver, by the things of this world. But may our ultimate contentment and our ultimate happiness be found in seeking the one whose blood washes away the crimson stain of sin, the one upon whom the Father's seal is set, the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone, Jesus alone is worthy of being our top priority and our greatest pursuit in life. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have given us this text for your glory and for our good. We thank you, Lord, that while the desires of our hearts were constantly evil, while we were enemies with you, not seeking you, not desiring you, not loving you, you sent your son Jesus to pay for the sins of your people. You took out the heart of stone in your people, the heart that would not bend the knee to you, the heart that would not yield to you, the heart that would not submit to you, and you replaced it. You replaced the dead heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that would desire you, a heart that would submit to you, a heart that would pursue you and do so rightly. Lord, what grace, what grace we we can't even fathom that you would love us so much to redeem us, to change us, to pour out your love and your blessings on us through Christ. We thank you for these things. We thank you for the eternal life that is found in Christ. We thank you for the grace that drew us to him. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would continually be more and more yielded to him. As he is not only our greatest priority, but must remain our greatest priority. Lord, forbid that we do not keep him as our top priority. But we pray, Lord, that by your grace, when we're tempted to let him slip to second or third place or, or worse, that you would discipline us in your love. Keep the Lord Jesus, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Keep the Lord Jesus as our top priority in life that we may glorify him in all that we do. Thank you for this blessed assurance that we have of eternal life in him. May we use every resource we have, every minute, for the sake of glorifying him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.